Today's reading may seem very familiar, and that's because it's the same reading as we had last week, and this is quite deliberate. The reading is from Exodus 34, verses 4 to 8. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Shall we just pray for Chris as he brings the word to us? <laughs> Lord, we thank you for Chris. We thank you for all the prayer, the meditation, the thought, the way you have spoken to him through these words. And we pray now that you will give us ears to hear and hearts and minds to listen so that we may hear you speaking through him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, morning, everyone. Um, so a couple, well, not a couple of years ago, 20 years ago, um, uh, over 20 years ago now, um, I went on um, a BMS, which is Baptist Missionary Society, uh, BMS Action Team year, which was kind of like a gap year, mission gap year. And um, I went up to Birmingham to train, and I got put in a team of people, and we headed off to India, into uh, Kolkata for uh, six months, and then came back and toured around the churches, um, telling them what we'd got up to. Now, um, I was going to put some photos of this on the screen, but there are so many to choose from, um, and I didn't know which ones to choose from. So what I've done is I've brought my two stone tablets today. <laughs> These big, do you remember photo albums? Yeah. Actual physical photo albums, can you believe it? Um, here they are. These two are photo albums from my time in India and my training with BMS. I'm going to leave them on the coffee tables out there. Um, so if, uh, when you're having your refreshments, you want to have a little nose through, go ahead. There are some hilarious pictures of them, um, of me in there. You know, this is 20 years ago, plus the fact that. Um, me and the two other guys on my team decided what better thing to do if you're stuck somewhere for six months than to do a beard growing competition. So if you want to see the results of that, that's in there too. So do have a look at those over refreshments. But I don't know if any of you have been to India, uh, but I had not really, I think I'd been to France and 
Denmark. I think those are the only two places I'd been to before I went to India. And as I got out of the airport, I was just sort of, I, I couldn't prepare myself for it, basically. I was just, wow, it just hit me. And um, if any of you have seen the film The Marigold Hotel, you will know of this phrase that they use, which is an insult on the senses. And I think that kind of sums it up. You can't quite prepare yourself for what you're about to see and hear and smell and everything. It's just a multi-sensory experience. It's such a beautiful country, but there's great wealth and great poverty right by, side by side each other. Um, in the uh, BMS guest house that we stayed in, um, it was a walled compound, so it had a garden and it had a walled compound and it had a gate and it had some guards on the gate. And I literally, I'm not joking, literally on the streets outside of those gates were um, people sleeping homeless. We've, we've talked about that this morning, but I mean, the numbers, the statistics in Calcutta at that time was that a third, I think it was about 18 million, 20 years ago this is, 18 million people in uh, Calcutta, and um, a third of that population, that's six million, were on the street. And there were people out on the street, the other side of the walled compound that we were in, uh, there were guys doing, um, you know, heroin and um, there were children playing in the streets with just ragged clothes and we worked with a number of those children in various projects that we went to support and it messes with your head because you can see that from a walled compound and the children holding onto the gates and waving at you and happy to see you and you're thinking mm, I can't quite handle this this is just too much it's such a country of extremes there's colour, there's activity, there's smells. They really loved my ginger beard. I had children running up to me and stroking my ginger beard. It was hilarious. I think they were like, wow, what is this fire on this man's face? Um, it was just brilliant. Um, it was just so overwhelming, though. And um, the other thing to say, though, is that it was very much a spiritually charged atmosphere. In Kolkata... Um, it was mainly, the, the main religion was divided between Islam and Hinduism. There were uh, a number of Christians there, uh, but they were in the minority. And um, it's, it was really interesting because over here, you're seen, increasingly seen, as weird if you believe in a god. Over there, you're seen as weird if you don't believe in a god. And I had some really interesting conversations with different people whilst I was there. And what's interesting as well is that because I was white and from the West, they automatically assumed I was a Christian. Obviously I was, but that was the assumption. And as I said, I had some really interesting conversations and I saw some really interesting things. And in his book, the book that we're going through uh, over the next few weeks, God Has a Name by John Mark Comer, he talks a little bit about his experience in India. And I really agreed with the next thing I'm just going to say that he, he wrote, which is this. There are literally millions of gods in the Hindu pantheon. And everywhere you look, 
There are temples and shrines and idols and priests praying and incense burning. And as a young man who had never really experienced this before, who'd only been used to going to a predominantly white British church and hearing about one God, it was a very eye-opening experience, to say the least. And though it was strange and alien to me, it felt spiritually charged. It felt real, not fake. When you walk past an idol or a temple, it feels like something is there. Have you ever had that kind of experience where you have been somewhere which feels different? It feels spiritually charged. And your Western secular brain tries to process it or explain it away, but you just can't shake that feeling that something is there, something real. What is that? And that's what the next chapter in the book and in this sermon today is about. Now, last week, we looked at the fact that God has a name, and that name is Yahweh, which is in the capital Lord, in capital letters in our Bible. This week, we're thinking about how God has a name, and that name is Yahweh. That's because Yahweh repeats his name twice. Did you notice that? He's not having a senior moment, though that happens to the best of us. No, God's making a point. See, today, if you want to emphasize something in an email or a text, you might underline a word or italicize it or put it in bold or in all caps. Or if you really wanted to make the point, you might do all of the above and then highlight it with a larger font and colour. But in the ancient world, if you really wanted to drive the point home, you would repeat it. So if you really wanted to make your point, you would repeat yourself again. Do you see what I did there? Yeah, got a few smiles. It's good to see you're alive, people. It's good to see you're alive. When Yahweh says his name twice, it's because he is wanting us to slow down, to be still, and to know that he is God. And that's my hope for this series, is that we, just, we do just that. But why does God need a name? Why not just call himself God? Why in the Old Testament is he usually called Yahweh or Lord in capital letters in our Bibles and not just God? Well, one of the reasons for this is because there are many gods. At the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the Hebrew word used for God here is Elohim, but this is not a name, it's a category. This name is also used to describe other spiritual beings. And Elohim is an invisible but real spiritual being. But what's radical about the creation account in the Bible is that the writers, writers of the Bible assert that there is but one Elohim that made everything, 
the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, the animals, you and me. And his name is Yahweh. Now this was a staggering claim to make because there were many other creation stories out there that essentially claimed that the universe was created in the aftermath of a giant cosmic battle between the gods. So in the Babylonian narrative, the god Marduk leads an epic battle against Tiamat and her monster army. He kills her and then makes planet Earth out of her corpse. Nice. Imagine that. But the Bible claims that the world was created by one God, Yahweh, not through conflict, war, or jealous infighting, but out of the overflow of his love and creativity. So according to the Bible, there's God, capital G, and then there's gods with a lowercase g, who are created invisible but real spiritual beings. And I'm just going to read, I'm going to read a few sections from the book this morning like I did last week. And um, we're going to just hear something from pages 81 through to 83 here. In the second book of the Bible, Exodus, we read about Yahweh saving Israel out of slavery in Egypt. We thought about that a little bit last week. Now there's a line in Exodus 12 where Yahweh says, I will bring judgment on all of the gods of Egypt. Most of you know the story of the 10 plagues, but what you may not know is that many of the plagues are directed at specific Egyptian deity. For example, Amun-Ra was the sun god in the Egyptian pantheon. He was also the king over all the other Egyptian deities of choice. So what does Yahweh do? He blots out the sun. For three days, it's pitch black. This is Yahweh's version of sticking it to the man, okay? It's his way of saying, Amun-Ra isn't the king over the gods. I am. So Yahweh's relationship with these other pretender gods is hostile. It's not an exaggeration to say he's at war with them. In fact, the warfare language is used all over the Hebrew scriptures. When Israel was finally out from under Egypt's whip, we read that Yahweh had brought judgment on their gods. As one first-hand observer put it, and this is Jephro, Moses' father-in-law, he said, Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Notice, all other gods. And what is Israel's response to Yahweh, saving them from Egypt and its pantheon? Worship. Worship. We immediately read a song of praise in Exodus 15. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Yahweh. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? So because Yahweh is in a class all by himself, and because he saved Israel out of slavery, he is the one and only Elohim, 
deserving of worship. Think of all the language in Psalms, the worship songs of ancient Israel. Listen to this from Psalm 86. Among the gods there is none like you, Lord, Yahweh. No deeds can compare with yours. All about this from Psalm 96. Great is the Lord, Yahweh, and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all the gods. Or this one from Psalm 97. Worship him, all you gods, for you, Lord, Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. So even the gods are to worship Yahweh. Why? Because he's the most high, as we've heard today. This language of Yahweh as the most high means that in the hierarchy of the gods, Yahweh's at the top and he's in his own category. I want you for a moment to think of the Ten Commandments. Can you remember what the first one is? You shall have no other gods before me. Most people skip over this commandment because they assume that there are no other gods, right? They're all made up a figment of Israel's imagination. And that could be true. But pay, pay close attention. It doesn't say that. In fact, it seems to assume there are other gods and we're not to worship them ever. The second commandment, therefore, says you shall not make for yourself an image or an idol. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. So there's a commandment about gods, and there's a commandment about idols, and Israel is to stay away from both of them. Perhaps all of this rings true to you, and you're thinking, yeah, 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 I know all of this. But perhaps there are some of you this morning who are thinking that, the talk, that um, the talk of other gods created invisible but real powerful spiritual beings just sounds like superstitious nonsense. Something that we've long outgrown in our secular, enlightened Western society. But from start to finish, the Bible repeatedly highlights the existence of these spiritual beings who manifest themselves in different ways. Think back again to Moses. He's in Pharaoh's throne room. To show that he's really from Yahweh, Moses does some miracles. First, he turns his staff into a snake. But then what happens? Pharaoh's magicians do the exact same thing. So next, Moses turns the Nile River into blood. But Pharaoh's magicians do the same. Then Moses makes frogs come out of the Nile and cover the whole of Egypt. But Pharaoh's magicians call on the dark arts and copy his miracle. Have you ever read this story and thought, how are they doing this? Magic? Sleight of hand? Neither. They are priests. They're linked up with Egyptian gods, tuned into the power of these malevolent spiritual creatures. And finally, Moses turns dust into gnats. 
and the magicians are at a loss. Apparently, gnats are a problem. My point is that there are other Elohim, and they have a certain amount of power even to work miracles. But over and over again, Yahweh warns his people, don't ever worship them. God encourages his people again and again and again not to worship these other gods. There is but one God, he says, the creator and sustainer of all life, and he is above all the other gods. One of the Psalms that marries the two, these two realities is Psalm 82. I don't know if any of you have read it. It's quite a short Psalm, but it begins with the following statement. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. Now, the NIV translates the Hebrew as great assembly, but in other translations, it's the divine council. And this is well-known imagery from the ancient world of a Near Eastern courtroom where the king, who would reside and be advised, makes judgments. And so here we have Yahweh, the king of all kings, God with an uppercase G, residing in the assembly over the gods with a lowercase G. And he's not happy with what they've been up to. He says, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? He then goes on to say, defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. You see, it would appear that some of these gods are wreaking havoc all over the earth. They're bringing injustice and encouraging wickedness to prevail. And Yahweh is saying, stop. Enough is enough. This is not my divine will. Instead, you should be defending the orphans, the poor and the weak, not abusing them even more. Yahweh then goes on to say, the gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high, but you will die like mortals and you will fall like every other ruler. Wow, that's pretty strong language. Essentially, God is saying to them, know your place. You are created beings, not the creator. Your knowledge is limited and your motives are impure. And if you carry on down this route, you will feel the consequences. There's a lot of fighting talk here this morning. (laughs) But time... And time again, and it's interesting that Israel is in the news again. It's interesting that Israel's in the news again because time and time again in the Bible we see Israel, God's people, continually breaking those first two commandments. They are seduced by neighboring gods and begin to worship them. They make carvings and statues to help them worship them. Remember the golden calf? Yeah? They sacrifice themselves to these other gods because like politicians, they boast great things and promise them everything they want and conveniently hide the small prince. They abandon their trust and relationship with Yahweh and have adulterous relationships with other gods. And in the process, they lose themselves 
their identity, and they end up in dark places, places that continually promote injustice and evil of every kind. And so Israel, like the prodigal son, wallowing in the pit at the end of their own resources, return to Yahweh, begging for mercy and forgiveness. And because Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness, he continues to be faithful to them, even when they are unfaithful to him. But sadly, this pattern happens again and again and again and again. And behind all of this are the gods, enacting their will to draw people to worship them and do their bidding, as if they were God, and causing all manner of suffering and havoc in the process. And so the psalmist ends Psalm 82 with a really provocative plea. He says, rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. In other words, Yahweh, do something about this. Sort them out. Take these wannabe gods down a peg or two. Bring your justice. And the answer to this prayer in Psalm 82 is Jesus. God's own son, God made flesh. I'm just going to read an extract about this from the book. As the New Testament writers look back on Jesus' life, his death and resurrection, they make it clear that one of Jesus' primary agendas was to disarm the powers at war with Yahweh. Listen to the writer John's summary of Jesus' work. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. Or here's a biopic from the writer Luke. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Mark gets right to the point. He traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. In the Old Testament, we don't read one story about an exorcism, zero. But the Gospels are chock full of stories about Jesus casting out all sorts of demons. What exactly is going on here? Simple. Yahweh is answering Psalm 82's prayer. He's coming to put an end to the gods' injustice. Now, there's this story early on in Luke's gospel that says this, and some of you will know it. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And everybody's eyes 
were on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's the equivalent of someone saying something profound on a stage and then dropping the microphone. It's big. Everyone's left going, whoa, who is this guy? Isn't he from round here? What's he saying that for? Who does he think he is? And time after time after time throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus doing just this. He practices what he preaches. He brings God's justice. He brings his rule and reign, his kingdom and will here on earth as it is in heaven. And the rest of the New Testament shows his disciples, the early church, also doing the same in his name, the name of Jesus, because his name has resurrection power. And many of us here today have seen this in our lifetime too. So where does that leave us? What do we make of all of this? Well, we need to be clear that there is more to the world around us than simply what we can see. There is a spiritual reality that we don't see, which is every bit as real as what you can touch, taste, and see. There are Elohim, invisible but real, created spiritual beings, enacting their wills on the earth. And there are all sorts of words in the Bible to describe these spiritual beings. And I'll go through the list. Gods, lowercase g, heavenly beings, sons of God, sons of the Most High, cherubim, seraphim, angels, demons, princes, lords, powers, principalities, rulers, authorities, spiritual forces of evil, powers of evil, powers of this dark world, and evil spirits. Some of them worship and follow Yahweh and work with him to enable his will to be done. And others, well, others want all the worship for themselves and work deliberately against Yahweh so that their will be done, not his. Now, I appreciate that this leaves us with a lot of questions. And I'm happy to talk afterwards, maybe whilst we're waiting on the front lawn during the fire drill. And though the Bible gives us many answers and insights to these questions, we are often left with a lot of mystery too. But if the Bible is to be believed, and I think it is, one of the things we need to be really careful about is who or what we get spiritual with. Have you ever heard anyone who you're talking with, they say, I don't really do God and I don't really do religion, but I'm spiritual. Yeah, heard that one? I've heard that one. I have some really interesting conversations with people who say that. But John Mark Comer in his book often replies to people who say that by saying, who are you spiritual with? We need to be really careful who or what we're spiritual with, who or what we worship. And I'm going to end just by reading a last section from the book from page 118. John Mark Comer says this, we are created beings. That means we're hardwired for worship. 
made by the Creator to love and live for something greater than ourselves. Now, worship isn't a religious thing. It's a human thing. Followers of Jesus worship. Jews worship. Muslims worship. Hindus and Wiccans and Druids and Neo-Pagans and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and tribal witch doctors worship. And famous anti-God secular atheists worship. We all make sacrifices. When you read about animal sacrifice in the Bible, keep in mind that in the ancient world, animals were currency, money over time. What do you spend your money on? What about that precious commodity we call time? When you're in need or in trouble or in a rough spot, where do you go for escape? To a sacred book or a temple or a yoga mat or a chant or a bottle or a gym or a website or a relationship? Where do you look for meaning and significance that will outlast your short-lived years on earth? We just can't stop worshipping any more than we can stop breathing. In his commencement address at Kenyon College, the novelist and social critic David Foster Wallace eloquently said this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He went on to warn that if you worship the wrong thing, it will eat you alive. Worship beauty and romance and sex, and you will always feel ugly and lonely, and when you age, you will die decades before your time. Worship money and stuff, and that extra car you don't need, and you will always feel poor and disconnected and unhappy with the life you actually have. So to say it again, there is one one true creator God who made the world and everything good, beautiful and true in it. And he has a name. His name is Yahweh. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. He's merciful, forgiving, just and life-giving as we will see over the coming weeks. And he and he alone is deserving of worship. He is the only source of life and peace and meaning and significance that will last past death and into forever. Love him with all your heart and your soul and your strength, with every scrap of your being, and not all those other things that you often go to in your hour of need. Worship God.